You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And if you guys will go ahead and stand, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who, has, who was given to us. And so, Lord, as we read uh, today and study, just look into these amazing truths of, uh, first of all, a standing, a standingness that we have with you by grace. And how that standing just changes our view and our perspective on suffering. Lord, we know that in this room there are so many different forms of trials and pressure and pain. Just even, just in some here today, perhaps even a lack of will to live or to continue in this. But Lord, we pray that as we study verse 1, Lord, that verses 3 through 6 will just be so sweet to us. Lord, this is just one of the most um, taught and spoken of applicable subjects in the scripture. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would just shape our minds around this text. Give us understanding. Give us faith that we would trust in what your word tells us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. As we begin verse 1, we start out with the word therefore. And to some of you who've you know, grown up in the church or been coming to Calvary for quite a while, you've learned this uh, great tool to the Bible scholar that whenever you see the word therefore, you got to ask, what's it there for? Okay. That's old to some of you, but to some of you, it's just, it's good stuff. You got to know, uh, you got to understand the context of the scriptures that you're reading. And so, uh, so therefore having been justified by faith, verse one tells us, and we are having an understanding now of the outline of of the book of Romans, we see in verse or in chapter one, just the depravity of man, man's absolute need for a savior. Uh, whether you're the pagan of chapter one or the one with a religious upbringing in chapter two, uh, you're a sinner. And chapter three kind of culminates those two chapters together that you are a, a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God. And because you're a sinner, chapter 1, verse 18 tells us that the wrath of God uh, abides upon you. Apart from Christ, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against men, against the unrighteousness and the ungodliness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And so chapters 1 through 3, and if you just read up to chapter 20, or verse 20 of chapter 3, you would just really have um, a, a message of damnation spoken to you. Uh, a message of hopelessness because we have sinned, we have offended our holy God, and that sin results in condemnation. But the good news is, is that the chapter of the book of Romans doesn't end there in chapter 3, verse 20. It continues on. And we've studied chapter 4, how we can be made righteous. We can be justified apart from the works of the law, apart from the works of the flesh. And we can be saved and set free because of the blood of Jesus that was shed as an atonement for our sins to pay the ransom price 
uh, against our sin, which holds us captive. And so in chapter 4, Paul uses Abraham as the ultimate example of how we can be made right and innocent through faith in God. And Paul painstakingly in chapter 4 went through Abraham's life and then even touched on David's life to prove this. That neither works nor circumcision or religious observance or keeping of the law, the, the law that's even given to us in the Old Testament, not doing those things, none of those things make us right before God. But it's simply by faith. And if you'll look there in chapter 4, verse 24, we see Abraham and his faith leading to righteousness is the example for us here in 2000, almost 2012. In Romans 4, 24, it says, Now, it was not written for his sake, for Abraham's sake alone, that righteousness was imputed to him, but also for us. It, righteousness, shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised up because of our justification. And so when we put faith and belief and trust in Jesus, when we rest in what Jesus has done, when we rest in the fact that verse 25 says, He was delivered up because of my sin, because of my transgressions. And I, I rest in that. And I also rest that He was raised, not only bodily and back to the earth, but then ascended into heaven so that He could be the mediator between God and man and that He could ever live to make uh, intercession for us. He acts as our attorney in heaven always pleading our innocence. And so because of these things, we've been justified by faith. If you put your faith in Jesus, you've been justified. That moment in the heavens when you're declared righteous by God and you're actually given righteousness by God in the heavens, we have peace with God at that moment. Peace with God, verse 1 says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word peace speaks of a quietness and a rest. I mean, we all remember, and some of you are in the place now where you are running from God. His Holy Spirit is speaking into your life, convicting you of sin and of unrighteousness in your life and of the judgment to come. And you are not resting. You're tossing, you're turning, you're uneasy. There's no quietness in your soul. There's no rest. And some of us remember that time, the BC days, the before Christ days, huh? And do you remember that day that Jesus got a hold of you? Do you remember that day that you found rest for your souls? Beautiful day, huh? Beautiful moments in your life. We have this peace with God because we're justified. Imagine going through a long court, drawn out court hearing, you know, uh, you know, declaring you to be guilty of some crime. And then the day comes where judgment is given and the judge slams down his gavel in heaven and declares you to be innocent. Even when you were guilty. Imagine that relief, that rest that's what happened in the heavens to those who have put their faith in jesus but before there can be peace and before there can be access to god there must be done uh, something done about the wrath of god the wrath of god that is against all unrighteousness <clears throat> and what has been done to that wrath that was to be on you. How? What has happened to this wrath that it, it was on you and it needs to be taken away before you can have peace with God, before you can have access to God? What has happened to this torrent of built-up damnation against you? Through faith 
It has been imputed to Jesus. And Jesus took it for you on the cross. The wrath that was meant for you was exchanged from you to him. And all of the blessings and glory that has been on him and is due to him has been shared and imputed over to you. And now there is peace with God. Not just a a feeling of peace, like some sort of Pilates yoga peace, you know, like you're balancing on your pinky toe just right and all of a sudden just, you know, you've reached your center or whatever. There's a whole lot wrong with that, but that's not what we're talking about right here. Some kind of feeling of peace, but also an objective peace, a a peace that comes about from the war being finished. And from the war being won. And as a result of this objective peace through the war being won, an internal peace comes. A healthy, biblical, internal peace comes because of what Jesus has won for you on the cross. This peace with God through our Lord, through our controller and our supreme authority Jesus Christ. It says through him, through whom, verse 2, we have access to this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Crazy, but since I was in high school, this has been one of my favorite verses. Uh, Just one of those verses that I remember from the first time I read it, it just immediately was just planted into my heart and just going through even high school, just thinking of this access that Jesus has won for us into grace, into the presence, into the throne room of God, into fellowship and communion with God. We have access. We've got the VIP pass, the backstage, you know, (laughs) privileges have been won for us uh, by grace, by Jesus. You know, this, this favor from God. It's not based on what we do or what we don't do. And if we run hard enough on the morality treadmill, then we've worked our way to be able to enjoy this rest and this quietness and this access into the presence of God. That's not grace. Grace says no matter what you've done and no matter even what you'll do, Jesus paid it all. Jesus worked it all. Jesus made it all possible. And if there's an iota of an attitude in you or a thought in you that your works or your failures or your accomplishment make or break this access to God, then it's no longer grace, but it's debt. And God would be a debtor to you. God's a debtor to no man. We studied that in chapter 4. We stand... We have access and we stand. This speaks of this stability, thoroughly having our feet planted on the ground. Perhaps some sort of three-point stance or something, you know, just this firm stability. Charles Hodge, a commentator well-loved on this chapter, says that the state into which the believer is introduced to Christ is not a precarious one. He has not only firm ground on which to stand, but he has strength divinely imparted to enable him to keep his foothold. And so grace gets us to the standing place and grace keeps us in the standing place. We're saved by grace. And we're made perfect by grace, Galatians chapter 3 tells us. And when we begin to think that, no, it's really now it's my effort. Now it's on me to finish this thing, to finish this race. And Galatians says that that's foolishness. You were made perfect, or excuse me, you were saved and you began by grace through faith. And you will be made perfect by grace through faith. God brings you in and gives you access by grace, and then he sustains you by his grace. And so, verse 2 closes with, 
And so we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This joy, this cheer, once we understand God's grace, maybe for some of you today, this is the first time you've heard of grace. This is the first time that you've heard that it's all on Jesus. And we just respond and believe in what Jesus has done and will do for us. First time you've heard that Jesus paid it all, past, present, and future. And so now you can rejoice. You can rejoice in the peace that he has won. Verse 1, you know, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can rejoice in that. You guys probably know by now, if you've known me much at all, that I'm kind of a military history buff. And I kind of like all areas, you know, reading, but I really tend to focus on World War II. And I think it's just because my grandpa was in World War II and, you know, just just love hearing the stories. And I just kind of, I don't know, there's just a strange thing. And I don't ask me why. You know, it's weird. It's my weird bag that I carry and I'm sure you guys carry. I think Stuart thinks I have Osberger's syndrome about it because I'm just like, obsessed. Okay. So I need to repent. But, um, but, uh, you know, there's a a documentary out uh, by Ken Burns called the war and it's like some five hours long or something like that. Maybe even longer than that. And it just starts at the beginning of world war two goes all the way through. And it's really just an eye opener of just how brutal of a war world war two was. I mean, just can't even, can't even express it. You know, and before that, before I'd seen the documentary, I just kind of, yeah, this is crazy. No, this is crazy. But then I remember by the end of this five DVD set or whatever, kind of laying on my couch when the credits were rolling, almost as if I'd been in the war myself, you know, just this shell shock. Like, I cannot believe that this happened in this world and that people, some of us know have gone, you know, just that crazy thing, right? And I remember after the war, you know, at the end of the movie, just the cheer and the rejoicing and the video of Times Square and just, you know, the sailor kissing the nurse or whatever it was that happened there, some scandal, you know, uh, just the cheer of the war being over and that joy. And I just think of, man, if we understood how World War II or whatever is really to us, it's a picture of the world war of sin and depravity and the destruction of Satan and the destructive power of sin. And, you know, it all, it's just a teeny tiny nutshell in studying the different wars on the earth. They're just kind of a shadow of how wicked and horrible and destructive sin is. But then when we realize that Jesus paid it all and that through one man peace could come to all who believe and they could have peace they could have quietness they could have rest they have eternal life and eternal hope they could be restored sin you know the 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 scars of sin in their life god can turn towards good and when we understand that that peace has been made Goodness gracious, there should be so much more than a Times Square style rejoicing in the believer's life. If you're not a singer, you should become a singer to shout about how great this piece is. If you're not a clapper and a dancer, just, man, get funky with it and just start rejoicing because the gl- we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because he has made peace. He has done it. Gosh. Let's put some volume to our worshiping God. Let's put some volume to our glorying and what He has done and how He has made us stand in this grace. And as if that couldn't be enough, we've got verse 3. And not only that. Okay, so right now, woo! He has made peace. We get to glory in that. We get to shout and jump and cheer and tell everybody else that the war is over. Come to Jesus. The war is over. But not only that, or if you're reading like an ESV, more than that, we also glory in our suffering. 
We also glory in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. How in the world can Paul write this? Has this man ever suffered a day in his life? And man, there is some heavy stuff represented in this room. You know what? I bet every single one of us has suffering of some sort going on right now. Of some sort. And, you know, really we can't judge one another's suffering that mine is worse than yours. Because God in his sovereignty has placed us in our present suffering right now to accomplish a purpose that that we're going to see right here in this chapter. And he's put the weight of it just right in your life as a tool to accomplish his purposes. And yes, as you guys chuckled, Paul does have a right to write about this. That we can glory, not only we can, but we do, we glory. Not only hope, but we glory and boast and rejoice in sufferings. The word is cheer. What kind of crazy, backward stuff is Paul writing right now? That we can cheer in our suffering, in our tribulation. It's the Greek word flipsis. And it speaks of an oppressing, oppressing together, a pressure. And you guys know what Paul's talking about. Every single one of you know what Paul's talking about. The oppression, the pressing of all various kinds, as James tells us. An affliction, trouble, anguish, perhaps persecution, a heavy burden that's going on. The difficult times. And our natural bent is not to rejoice, but to what? Complain. And whine and sob and sorrow. And rightly sorrow. (laughs) Rightly groan. But Paul says that here's how we can rejoice. Because we know it brings about perseverance. Or patient endurance. Kind of a picture of muscle building. To build muscle, you must first tear your muscle and bring pain and break it down and let it heal. And when it heals, it comes back stronger. But the process for that strength, it's a painful one. So as we look at this perseverance as this suffering, you know, there's really no other area that hits so close to home for everybody you know, other than sin, than this truth of suffering. You know, the suffering we go through reminds us that we live in a fallen world. Spiritual and emotional and social suffering, it's all because of sin. It's a result of sin. It's a result of worshiping the creature rather than the creator. It's a result of de-godding God. And as we look at our friends and our neighbors and our families and we watch the Lord begin to work some sort of perseverance in their life and our life, there's different worldviews on suffering as people go through it. There's, I'm just going to give you four. There's the dicetic view, where in a person's life, suffering is denied, Okay. That it's just some lower part of life, the physical aspect of life. It's this lower level of life. And so people deny this kind of subhuman part of life. It's the spiritual life that matters. And so whatever you're suffering, just kind of put it out of your mind and pretend that it doesn't exist. Dissect it out of your life, even though it's still happening. You have the stoic view that suffering is just simply managed. It's just managed, you know. There, there's no hope in suffering. There's no purpose in suffering. And so the Stoic view would say, just press on. You know, get yourself a stiff upper lip and just go for it. Carry on, get through it, be brave, and buck up. 
Okay, that's the Stoic view. The hedonistic view is that suffering should be balanced with pleasure. You can medicate yourself with just huge uh, amounts of self-therapy. You know, eating the full deal of ice cream. You know, going skydiving. Going on a shopping spree. You know, just however bad your suffering is, counter it with something in this world and just go to town with it and that's what will make you better. But the Christian perspective, the biblical perspective, tells us actually that we rejoice in suffering. It just sounds funny when you say it, you know. We rejoice and we cheer when we suffer. And we can do that because of verse 1. We can do that because we've been justified by what Jesus has done. And so we rejoice because we have that perspective that when suffering comes our way, God is using it as a tool to make us who he wants us to be and to glorify himself in our lives. The troubles, the pressure, the trials, the tribulation, they change our lives. And even if you're saved, you still suffer. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you know, Paul says, I was beaten, I was mocked, I was whipped, persecuted, but I was also just suffering in general. I was naked, hungry, and cold. And as we just began, that God works suffering, first of all, for perseverance in our life. It's just a note to us that not even evil and not even suffering is outside of God's sovereignty. We talked about that today at our men's hub group, discipleship leaders getting together. We talked about, you know, how does suffering and and how does evil work with God being sovereign at the same time? And I just read a quote from D.A. Carson, and it by no means ends our conversation that we were having, but he said that, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside of his bounds of his sovereignty. Yet, the evil is not morally chargeable to him. It is always chargeable to secondary agents, to secondary causes. And you look at the life of Job, how God allowed the buffeting of Job, and yet it was Satan that was causing it. It was Satan that was making it happen. And God used that in Job's life to be the very tool that would shape Job to be just the guy that God wanted him to be. Sufferings are the norm of the Christian life. Everyone deals with it. It's very applicable to us. And the Christian life actually promises more suffering than just the normal person's life because Jesus says, hey, I'll promise you this, you'll be persecuted for me. So the Christian life kind of gets the the plus factor uh, to the suffering level. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, in chapter 11, verse 23 actually boasts about his suffering. He boasts about his suffering because it's the confirmation that God was with him. People would say, well, hey, if Paul, Paul, if God is with you, then why do you suffer? Why are just bad things happening to you in every area of your life? And Paul says, that's just the confirmation that God is with me. And he says that in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Are they ministers of Christ? I am more so... And look, all this suffering proves it. Paul saw that a life of suffering brought great things in people's lives. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, why don't you flip over there? Verses 3 and 4. Second Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble 
with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Love to have a dollar every time the word comfort was used in that section. But, you know, Paul says, hey, the Lord lets us go through hard things because he is accomplishing something. He is using that as a tool. And one of the tools that God uses in our life through our suffering is that as he comforts us in our pressing, oppressing affliction, then we are able to say, God was with me through the fire. And then the next time we are around somebody that suffers and is going through the fire, we can say, hey, rejoice in this suffering because God is with you. One thing he promised, he will never leave you or forsake you. And he was with me when I went through all of this horrible, dark time in my life. He never left me. He never forsake me. And he worked about a great weight of glory in my life through the suffering. And so be comforted. And you know what? God's going to use you someday to comfort somebody else as well. You know, God has let you go through some of the hardest trials you could write a book about, make a made-for-TV movie about. (laughs) So that that one person who goes through the same thing that nobody else understands, you're able to say, I understand. And God brought me through it. And I'm able to worship him and praise him and glory and cheer in sufferings. And may God change your perspective that you would be able to as well. And then you just go a couple more verses to verse 8. 2 Corinthians 1.8 says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our tribulation which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And that might speak right to you today. Suffering to such a point, you feel like you are burdened beyond measure, above strength. You are even despairing of life. Don't know if you can wake up one more day and face these trials. And yet Paul tells us, hey, you know what? We went through all of this. We even had the sentence of death in ourselves. Why would God allow us to do that? Verse 9 closes with it. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raised the dead. I got to speak at uh, the Corvallis School of Ministry, Cornerstone School of Ministry, just uh, got a random request on Sunday as I was at church over there and the administrator of the school said, hey, could you, you know, come in on Tuesday and teach a lectures in ministry class? And uh, such a privilege to be able to do that. And as I was praying through what the Lord might have me share, um, I shared on some five S's, okay, five S's. And uh, one of those S's was suffering, suffering in the minister's life. And I just shared about how, you know, since I've been here in Prineville, uh, there have been trial after trial after trial after trial. And, you know, you know, we as elders have fought through trial after trial together. Hard things, hard discussions, hard topics, hard conversations, hard confrontations. And it seems like, you know, we kind of joke that, well, okay, so in my interview when I came here, um, my wife came into the interview with us and all the elders and their wives. And the first question was to Lindsay. Lindsay, what is Rory's greatest weakness? And Lindsay didn't like, oh gosh, I don't know if he has a weakness. No. <laughs> didn't miss a beat. Rory has a hard time with confrontation. All right. And so about three months after being here, uh, Frank Sanchez said to me, boy, I think God is just pulling that out of you, man. You know, I was like, well, I don't, it's not that I fear it any less. It's just that I do it a lot more, you know, <clears throat> but just with, as the elders, you know, it's like as elders, like we're going to have to have a meeting about this, aren't we? Yeah, we are. We're going to have to have a meeting about the, yeah, we are. We're going to have to meet, yeah, we are, you know, just one thing after another where it's like, man, we got to talk about this. We've got to work through this. 
You know, and at times it's, it's at times suffering. At times it's laying in bed awake at night. At times it's shedding tears. At times it, it's battling anxiety. Tough stuff. Suffering. You know, by no means like what Paul went through. Yet. <laughs> but, Paul said, the Lord lets us suffer so that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raised the dead. And if it was all easy every day, being shepherds of this church, you know, just singing around and clicking our heels and, you know, rainbows and gummy drops and, you know, kittens and all that stuff, uh, we would begin to think that we've got it. We would begin to think, you know what, we don't really need God. We don't really need to pray. You know, we're sufficient in ourselves. And Paul said, hey, I was shipwrecked, I was beaten, I was naked, I was hungry, I was cold, I was imprisoned. You know, I, just you name it, I went through it, and all of it was so that I wouldn't be self-sufficient. And for you that are suffering today in all of the various ways that you're suffering, God doesn't want you to be self-sufficient. He wants you on your knees, that you could glory in what he's doing. You know, Paul talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 about a thorn in his flesh. Something in his life that caused him pain and grief. And as you look at 2 Corinthians 12, you're probably already almost there. Verse 7, he says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, even a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure, just having haughtiness in and of yourself. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that he might, um, it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you see what's happening there? God allowed something into Paul's life, a thorn in the flesh, and to kick it up a notch, even Satan was trying something against Paul, and Paul had to respond. It's been said that trials can either make you bitter or better. And which route did Paul go? He let that trial refine him. He let that messenger of Satan buffeting him, he let that just more buffer him and buff him and make him shine. The more suffering, the more strength. The more suffering, the more glory. The Psalms are just chock full of pleading to God and saying, why God? And how long are you going to wait, God? And avenge me against my enemy, God. Constantly, the psalmists write that. Hebrews chapter 12 says that no chasing, chastening seems to be pleasant at the moment, but painful, but it yields peaceable fruits of righteousness to those who've been trained, uh, uh, trained by it. And so every form of affliction you're suffering right now is not unnecessary. Some of you are homeless. Some of you are jobless. Some of you have medical conditions. And oh, Kenny, you're in the hospital just regularly with seizures, and Kirk is in the hospital with seizures all the time. Some of you have cancers of various sorts, and they are not unnecessary. The death of your child, the miscarriage, the, you know, the, the divorce that's happening that Satan is using in your life, God is letting it work in you. The marital issues, whatever it is, the pain, the argument, the tension. It's not unnecessary. We might not get how it relates right now, but it relates biblically. Corey Tin Boom, you know, who went through the Holocaust as a, I don't believe she was a Jew. I think, I don't remember the whole story. I've seen the movie a whole bunch, but <laughs> yeah, Tori, Corey Tin Boom, you guys know her. She's a Facebook friend. <laughs> she said, life is like looking at a tapestry. On the back, it is unkept, and you can't really tell what it is. Threads weaving all around. But on the front, you see the beautiful work of art. Alan Redpath, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, 
wrote this commentary called Blessings Out of Bufferings. And he says, the Lord Jesus watches because he allows the pressure to continue in order that in the severest hour of testing, it may drive you to his wounded side and teach you that for overwhelming pressure, there is adequate grace. And so whatever you're suffering with, don't complain, but rejoice. Run to his throne of grace. Run to his side. And there is grace for your moment of suffering. There's grace for you right now. This perseverance is worked out in your life. And as you look at perseverance and character and hope, It's important to connect our suffering that we go through with the doctrine of justification by faith. If you believe in verse 1, then you'll have a changed view on suffering. You'll understand that suffering isn't God's disapproval in your life. Because where did all of his disapproval against your life go? On the cross. It was at the cross on Jesus. All of his disapproval and wrath on you, past, present, future, through faith, your account goes to the cross. Your account goes to the cross. And so the suffering that now is going on in your life, it's not disapproval of God. It is the tool of God. He's using it to refine you. He's using it to make perseverance and forbearance happen in your life. Getting underneath the weight and bearing its weight gives you strength. The trials do you more good than the tribulations do you evil. This perseverance shows you that you're in a marathon in the Christian walk. Not a a sprint race. In Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower and the seed, Jesus says that the one that received the seed on stony places is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, but has no root in himself and endures only for a while. For when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. And some of you are in that place. You've heard about Jesus. You're all excited about heaven and friends and all of that stuff. But when suffering or persecution comes, because you have no roots in your seed, you're going to tap out. You're going to tap out of the sufferings. You're going to get out and get away as quick as you can. So right now, man, please, Lord, dig roots down deep. I don't want to be that seed. Perseverance builds character, verse 4 tells us. Character, or King James Version, is experience. Or trustiness. God uses these pressing, trying times to build trustiness that he couldn't have developed in any other way. Do you have friends that have walked through the fire with you, have walked through trials with you, and you know you can trust them? Because you know we have experience together. We've walked through the fire together. And I know that I can trust them in this. Growing up, I loved the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. Hilarious. (laughs) But as you read it, Calvin's dad is always telling him that his suffering is building character. You know, if it's too cold or if it's too hot inside, then he puts him out in the snow. And then as he goes out to the snow, he gets locked out and his dad yells from the window, quit complaining, you're building character, you know. Or Calvin will get a bloody nose And, you know, the dad will say, don't whine about it. You're building character. And Calvin says, well, all of my character is running out of my nose right now. We all have this character that, you know, it needs to be tested. And this tested character doesn't belong only to those who are advanced in years. You probably see it more to those who are advanced in years. But to those of you that are young, you're not a part of that character testing. And you're not apart from going through suffering that will show yourself proved under fire. And the Bible speaks of this refiner's fire where, you know, gold is placed above the fire and the fire is turned up so hot that the gold melts into a liquid. And then as the the gold just gets hotter and hotter and hotter, all of the impurities and things that shouldn't be in the gold 
float up to the top and are called dross. And then the, you know, the goldsmith or the silversmith takes his uh, filter you know, and, and goes across that and scoops off all of that dross and all of that impurity. And the gold is made absolutely pure. And the Bible tells us that's what happens in our lives. And we should welcome it. We should rejoice in it. Rejoice as the fire is turned up. Malachi 3.3 says that he will sit as a refiner and as a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. You know, God allows us to go through the fire that we can be melted down and the dross can be scooped away. James tells us, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And usually it's a fall, isn't it? You don't see it coming. You're blindsided. Remember the day we found out my dad had Hodgkin's disease. I was a fifth grader. We'd been deep sea fishing and we went into the hospital and we just get the blow of life-threatening cancer. You just don't expect it so often. We fall into these various trials and all kinds of various trials. But rejoice, count it joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And Romans tells us that that perfect work of patience produces character. And character produces hope. We know, Romans 8.28 says, that all things work together for good. But who is that for? Is that for the world? I mean, do we tell that to our unsaved coworker? Hey, God's working it all out for good in your life. The chapter says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. And today you can come to Jesus and surrender And you can be justified. You can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can have access and stand in his grace today. Forgiven. Born again. Transformed. By faith. And as you do that, you can know, hey, all things work together for good. Verse 5, now the hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Holy Spirit's job in our life is to pour out the love of God in our hearts. He bears witness with our spirit that we are you know, sons and daughters of God. He pours out love in our hearts. The fruit of the Spirit is Love, which gives birth to all sorts of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Might have forgotten something there. But the fruit of the Spirit in us is love. First John tells us whoever is born of God loves his brother. And if your life isn't marked by love for people, there's a question on if you're born of God. And maybe you've been born of God. And maybe you've had the the joy of salvation that David writes about. Maybe even God has been placing you in greater and greater aspects of ministry. But is there love? Is there love? If you're not loving people, even in a ministry that you're doing, you're actually quenching the spirit of God. And there needs to be repentance. And there just needs to be, Lord, I confess I haven't been loving the kids as I serve them. I haven't been loving you or the people as I vacuum the church or clean the bathrooms. I haven't been loving as I, you know, do this or that. Lord, give me love. If there's not love in your life, agape, unconditional love, something is wrong in your life. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, man, we could speak with the tongues of men and angel. But if we don't have love, we're like a sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. We could give all of our you know, uh, possessions to feed the poor. But you know, if we don't have love, it profits us nothing. We could even give our body to be burned. 
But if we don't do it in love, it's worthless. It profits us nothing. And so, God, give us love. God, worship team, you can come on up. God, help us to understand justification. Help us to understand the standing that we have in Jesus. And as we understand the standing, we can understand suffering. And that as we come and we take communion today, we can remember Jesus' suffering. And what to the world seemed like an utter failure and an utter victory for Satan, God was using it as a tool to save the whole world. And let's thank him for that as we partake of the cup and of the cracker. Lord Jesus, pray. Lord, we thank you for verse 1. just makes us want to cheer and shout. And Lord, we want to take communion with joy today, proclaiming the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Understanding that you ever lived to make intercession for us, that you took our penalty on the cross. And we have cheer in our hearts and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, Lord, we can rejoice in our present sufferings knowing that you are working a great work out in our life. Lord, work forbearance in us, work character in us, and work hope by the power of the Spirit that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for your death, and we thank you for your suffering on the cross. We thank you for the blood that was shed. We thank you for your body that was broken. And Lord, as we partake of communion, we, we, we just... We reckon, we, we put in us this knowledge and this understanding and this truth of that Christ suffered once for all, the just for the unjust. That you suffered for us, Lord, that we could be made righteous and justified. During these songs, you can come forward and get the elements for communion, take them back to your seat. And just get right with God. Get real with God. If you're not a Christian, the Bible says don't come and partake of communion because you're drinking judgment on yourself. But the good news is you can become a Christian today. And by even coming to the table, you can just make a step of faith and just say, Lord, as I stand at the table, I just believe in what you've done. I believe in your blood that was shed and your body that was broken, that my sins could be taken away, that I could stand and have access into the grace. And Lord, I can even have this hope of the glory of God. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.